If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews 11 again. We're continuing in our series there, uh, calling the series Family Portraits, because we're looking at all the different uh, believers who've gone before us in the Old Testament and what they can teach us about faith today. And we're going to be focusing on verse 29 today, verse 29. Uh, Last week, you remember, Kevin walked us through the Passover, and that was something that dealt with the entire nation of Israel. But even there, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews focused on Moses and his role, what he did by faith. Well, today, the verse doesn't focus on an individual at all. It just says, here's a picture of the whole family at that time. It, it refers to the people of Israel. And what they collectively did by faith. I think there's a lot of lessons for us in it. So let's hear God's word. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Amen. So like I said, this is not just an individual. This is a whole people. There's something about faith collectively, I think, that we can learn from this. Um, kind of unlike any other event in the, in the life of Israel, the Red Sea crossing uh, was the, the event that solidified faith for everybody. It was almost like the faith that Moses had and Aaron had, had finally at the Red Sea crossing been transferred over to the whole nation. And all the people began to believe the promise. And all the people began to act on their faith in the promise as God led them through the Red Sea. Think about just how amazing the event must have been. We, we read about it earlier in the service. Um, if you've ever seen the, the cartoon uh, version of, of the story of Moses called The Prince of Egypt. If you've never seen that, you need to repent and go watch it. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, even though it's a cartoon, it is so good, isn't it? That they capture a sense of reverence uh, about the, the story of Israel and Moses. And you remember this, the, the two walls of water on each side as they walk through. And in, in the night, you know, lightning flashes and boom, there's a shark, you know, staring over the people. Imagine just how scary and awesome. I mean, literally awesome, uh, inspiring awe. Uh, that event must have been. Well, it was, it was a defining moment in the life of the faith of God's people. And it continued to be throughout time. I wonder, you know, I'm sure everybody in this room can think about some of those defining moments in your life. Everybody's got them. Uh, sometimes they're good things. You know, a wedding, uh, or usually weddings are good things. I guess sometimes it, sometimes it turns out they're not, but... Uh, weddings are nevertheless defining moments, you know, things that shape life, right? Uh, the birth of children, um, graduations, all kinds of things can be defining moments. Receiving the job that you keep for the rest of your life, defining moment. Uh, defining moment works in many different ways. It works in that moment, right? It works to change you forever. But here's something else about a defining moment. It continues to work even after it's over, doesn't it? It continues to, to teach you things. As you think back to the moment, and as, of course, the moment has rearranged your life completely from the moment it started, that it it continues to have an impact on everything that you say and everything that you do. The Red Sea crossing was a defining moment. Moses was finally, finally uh, handing over the mantle of faith and belief 
from himself as an individual to all these people, men, women, boys, and girls. And one of the things we learn, and the title of the sermon this morning is The Faithful Savior Meets Saving Faith. Because one of the things we learn is that in order for that, well, in order for faith to carry over not just from, you know, the community, but to you personally. Well, one of the things that's required for you to have real faith as the Bible defines it is that you have such a defining moment as this that happens in your life that you embrace and that continues to have ongoing effects. So let's look at the passage more closely. You can see in your bulletin there are three things about this saving faith that meets a faithful Savior that I want you to see. First of all, we can see where it begins. Secondly, we can see what's the most critical thing that it does. And then lastly, we're going to see how it's nourished. Where it begins, what's the most critical thing it does, and how is it nourished. All from this story of the Red Sea crossing in Israel. First of all, where does saving faith begin? Real faith. When faith went from Moses to the whole nation, and it really, the penny dropped for them. We see how it begins here. It's a shift, a radical life shift that happens in Israel as they walk through the Red Sea. Think about it. I mean, sometimes we need nothing less than a radical shift. Isn't that right? Uh, Sometimes revolutions are exactly what the doctor ordered. Uh, Did you know that for many years of history, uh, people believed that the earth was flat? Uh, and, and they believe that basically the, the, the earth was still in outer space and that the sun moved around the earth and that all the stars every night moved around the earth. It was almost like we were on a flat earth with a big dome and everything was just spinning around and around. People thought this. They believed it with all their heart. In fact, you know, even the church and the state and everything got behind this idea and they, they didn't like it when it was threatened until a man named Nicholas Copernicus started doing some you know, rifling around in the science. Uh, He was a mathematician. He was an astronomer. And I don't know how he figured it out back then with almost no technology or tools to do it. But he figured out, no, actually, it's the other way around. Uh, The earth is what's moving. The sun is still. The stars are actually fixed. The earth is moving around the sun every year and around and around every single day so that everything looks like it's moving even though it's not. Well, they call that the Copernican Revolution. Have you ever heard of that phrase, the Copernican Revolution? And if you know anything about the Copernican Revolution, it actually caused a whole lot of civil and spiritual unrest in Europe at the time when when Copernicus came up with it. Because he was proposing something that was radically different than what everybody thought it was for so many years before. And yet, everybody today would agree, or almost everybody... You can find some people on YouTube that disagree, but <laughs> almost everybody would agree Copernicus was on to something, and we needed that revolution to understand the world. We needed it. Well, don't you know that the Israelites, because they had been enslaved in Egypt for so long and separated from God, don't you know they needed a revolution in the heart? Let me ask you a more personal question. Don't you know that you need a similar kind of Copernican shift of the heart, a Copernican revolution? Isn't that what, isn't that, doesn't sin cause a radical self-centeredness? In a similar way that everybody had a earth-centeredness in the way that they thought? And isn't it true that faith, if it's going to ever begin in your life, and by faith I don't mean just simply bare belief, 
Uh, don't you know that 87% of Americans just last year in a Gallup poll said they believed in God? 87%, that's a lot of people. That's nine out of every 10. There's only one lonesome person out of every 10 Americans that would say, I don't believe in God at all. And yet, do all of those people, nine out of 10 Americans, do they have faith the way Jesus talked about faith? Do they have faith the way the Bible talks about faith? I think the answer to most people would be, if, well, no, they don't. You see, there's a big difference between just simply saying, yeah, I accept that there is a God or I accept that he's got some kind of you know, thing he wants to do in my life versus what the Bible calls saving faith where I'm actually depending on the specific work that God has done to send his son into the world to save me from my sin. And what I'm saying is in order for that faith to be real in your life, in order for that to be something that's yours, in order for it to be something that's ours as a church and as a community, there has to be a revolutionary shift from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Copernican revolution of the heart. The Red Sea crossing was like that. It was a powerful miracle. In fact, if you go back, Clint read us part of the story, but if you go back and read the rest of the story, and you might remember this, you probably don't, but we, we did preach on Exodus at Greater Hope a long time ago. And you probably don't remember uh, what we talked about then, but right at the beginning of Exodus chapter 14, it says God was the one that led them to the Red Sea. And it actually used this word, God hemmed them in in the wilderness. Remember that from the sermon that we talked about that? God hemmed them in. In other words, I mean, if you just pulled out a map, maybe your Bible has a map in the back of Israel and Egypt and all the Middle East. There are a lot easier ways to get from Egypt to Israel than through the Red Sea. The Red Sea is huge. It's deep. It's wide. Uh, you could have easily gone up over some smaller rivers that were more to the north. Just look at your map and you can see it. And yet God had a design in this. God led them to that giant sea and said, this is where I want to take you. Not only that, but the, the Exodus says that God actually was involved in ensuring that Pharaoh's heart would get hardened against Israel. So that even though he had let them go just a couple of months before, he was now angry with them again and he was going to pursue them with his armies. And so here you are, a million people, Israel, standing. Your face is at the Red Sea, at your back and at your sides, the Egyptian army with all the chariots. You are hemmed in. And guess who did it? God did it. Now, why did God do it? Exodus tells us. Clint read this part to us. God said to Israel through Moses, the Lord is going to work for you. God, why did you lead us here? Uh, the Lord is going to work for you. I want you to know that your little journey from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land is not a journey that you have done on your own steam. I want you to know it wasn't your idea. I want you to know that it wasn't your strategy and scheming that got you there. And I want you to know it's not according to your purpose that you're going there. You're not going there to get done what you want to get done. You're going there to get done what I want to get done. And to prove it once for all, there's going to be this defining event. I'm going to split a sea wide open. 
and I'm going to walk you through it with a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other. The Lord himself will fight, will work for you, God said through Moses. I want to tell you, when God builds faith in your life, he does the same thing. He hems you in. You will not, this is human nature, this is sin nature actually, to think self-centeredly, self-reliant, self-rule, self-pleasure, you know, all those kinds of things, self-fulfillment, that's our nature. And so unless all the horizontal avenues are completely closed down, we are probably not going to be quick to look at the vertical avenue. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? If there is a human self-centered avenue open to me, the nature of my heart is to take that rather than to go to God. Rather than to look at him and listen to him and depend on him and obey him, I'll take any other route. And so what God does when he wants to start faith in the lives of his people is he makes it where there is no horizontal avenue available. Going ahead, there's a sea. We, can't, we probably can't even swim. If, even if we could swim, we can't swim that far. And then, oh, let's turn around. Oh, we can't turn around because, look, Pharaoh's army, the most powerful army in the world, is coming at us from all sides. There is nowhere to go except up. That's where faith starts. A shift from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. I remember when I was uh, in college, I was wrestling with a lot of things related to my faith. I had had faith, you know, God had given me faith as a gift from, from being a young boy. But I was wrestling with different questions. I was not sure what my life path ahead of me would look like. And I picked up a book that had just came out, and it was very, very popular. No doubt many of you have heard of the name of it, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Have you ever heard of that book? It was very, very popular at this time. I mean, every church was doing it. 40 Days of Purpose is what they called it, where you, you took 40 days to read through this book. Well, I, I picked it, my copy up just this week because I remembered very vividly something I read in, on day one. And by the way, I noticed my, my uh, bookmark was just on day four. Uh, so for me at 19, it was four, four days of purpose that changed my life. And, and, and literally that, that first chapter really opened my eyes to something. And I want to read to you the part that opened my eyes. It's actually the very first words of the whole book. And I can't speak for the other days because, I only, like I said, it was only four days of purpose for me. But this is what it says. It's not about you. Wow. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. That, that hit 19-year-old me pretty hard, right? Because as, as self-centered as 36-year-old me is, 19-year-old me was even much more self-centered, right? Much more. I was way worse. And Rick Warren's words, which he was really drawing from Scripture, where it says that God made all things not only by his power but for his glory. It changed my whole course of life. The Red Sea crossing. You can't do it on your own. 
You can't pick your, your path in life. You can't, you can't choose your own adventure and expect that it's going to lead to true fulfillment, true blessing, true happiness. No, where, where does true life begin? Where does faith begin? Noticing that it's not about you. It's not about me. Sometimes we turn even Christianity into an about me-ism. Where we come to church or we, we pray and we, we want God to kind of be our servant, to, for lack of a better word. We, we want him to perform for us. We have our plans and our agenda and we want God to rubber stamp it, to notarize it. <laughs> but the fact is, in this story of our, of our ancestors in the faith, those who've gone before us is a reminder that God does not operate that way. He does not rubber stamp our plans. God comes with his own plan. He comes barging into our life with his own plan. And he's going to close down every avenue so that you'll look up, so that you'll follow him. It's not bad for us, it's good for us. This is in fact what the Bible, when the Bible talks about conversion, when it talks about what it means to become a Christian, this is what it's talking about. The revolution of the heart. It's, it's a very good thing. It's, it's something that takes you from being on a path to hell to being on a path to heaven. This revolution of the heart. It's something that happens at a moment in time, just like the Red Sea crossing, but it's also something that continues to teach you throughout your life. I mean, there is a sense, y'all, where if, you're, if you are a converted person, you are a converting person. Isn't that right? Where every day you need conversion. You need to turn from whatever it is that it is driving you away from God to God. Whatever it is that's making you think life's about you to now realizing that the world is not revolving around you like we used to think it did with the earth. The world, actually, your life included, revolves around God, his pleasure, his purpose. And so the faith of Israel asks us a very important question this morning. The experience of Israel begs a question. Have you had this revolution in your heart? Would you say honestly before the Lord this morning that you're growing more God-centered or more self-centered in your life? Which one would you say before the Lord? Uh, if the answer is, man, I'm growing more and more self-centered, then guess what? We are, we are here in the presence of a God who split seas. We're here in the presence of this God, the God that we read about this morning in our passage, the God who makes a way where there is no way. He hymns you in just so that you'll know. Your way is a dead end. His way is the only way. Amen? That's the first thing, where faith begins. We don't want to take too much time on it. We're going to move on. Secondly, what does faith do that's the most critical thing that it does? Well, what is the most critical act of faith? We see that in the passage. It's really important, isn't it, to know how something works, not just that it works. Right? Uh, if you, I mean, it's okay to know that something works, like your car, even if you don't know how it works. But when it starts to break down, that's where you really got to know, you know, how the thing works, not just that it does. I had a smaller story that I had this week. I was working uh, on my computer, and it, the battery started to hit red. And so I knew I needed to plug it in. Right there by my desk was my plug. And so I just reached up and put it in there, and I just kept working. Uh, not long later, the thing just died. I looked back, and I had plugged it into my computer. But guess where it was not plugged in on the other side? To the wall, right? It was a wonderful illustration of how a power cord works. 
uh, a power cord does not energize your computer because it's got some kind of power in it. Right? Do you all agree with that? The power cord, I learned, is not going to do a bit of good unless it's plugged into the wall. And the, the wall wouldn't do a bit of good unless it was plugged into Tico. Right? I mean, that's how power works. That's how a power cord works. That's the same way faith works. Faith is like a power cord. That's what uh, the experience of Israel walking through the Red Sea, I think, helps to illustrate for us. Faith's power is not in itself. Um, You don't get what you want from God because you're such a great faithful person and your faith is awesome. Faith is just a power cord that plugs into God's awesomeness and God's greatness. Uh, In the story from Exodus, you got to ask this question. Just like we've asked in every single family portrait we've looked at from Hebrews chapter 11. What exactly did they do by faith that they're being commended for? It says here, by faith in Hebrews, the people walked through the sea. Well, what exactly did they do? Let me ask you some questions. Did the Israelites by faith split the sea? Did they by faith cause it to come back again so that the Egyptians were drowned? Uh, did they, by faith, um, build a bridge really quick over the sea so they could walk across? Uh, did they, by faith, build a boat so that they could row across? What did they do by faith? They just trusted, right? They just trusted. In fact, if you go back and read the story, here's what they did. Very simple. Moses had a role. Here's what he did. Watch. That's what he did by faith. He just, his hands were here and he went. And God did the rest. (laughs) He was the power cord that just plugged in. And the Lord began to do what the Lord only can do. What did Israel do? Well, God God said, and this is amazing. God says to Israel, hey, look, I'm going to do all the work for you. You only have to stand still. That's what God said in Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to work for you. You just got to stand still. That's all you got to do. And that's what the Israelites did. They stood still and watched Moses do this. And they watched the sea split. And then what did they do? All they did was just walk. And you say, well, that was a bold thing to do. Well, not really. Because where else were they going to (laughs) go? There literally was only one narrow road open to them. They just trusted God enough to get on that one road that was the only road available. And they walked on it probably with fear and trembling. I mean, it says at the end of this, they were afraid of God. And can't you imagine what it was like to walk between two walls of water and a big sea? That'd make you scared. Scared of the Lord. A good kind of fear. A fear and trembling. But all they did was walk. And then it says, as they walked, they saw. So Moses did this. Israel just walked the only route that they had to walk. And then they just looked. At what God did. That was the actions of faith in this story. And that tells you something about the most critical thing that faith does. The most critical thing that faith can do, and actually what makes faith real versus fake, is that real faith stands on the work of God rather than your own work. Faith depends on the word of God rather than your own ideas. Faith centers on God's uh, character and purpose for life rather than your own character and your own purpose for life. Faith is a resting and a trusting in the work of somebody else. That's what it is. 
Uh, Jesus often told people, you might remember, as he healed somebody, for example, he would say, your faith has made you well. He said that over and over again. Your faith has made you well. Uh, Even in the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the very beginning, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And and we can sometimes read those statements. Your faith has made you well, and without faith it's impossible to please God. And we can misunderstand them in a very critical way. Sometimes when we hear that, we think, okay, I know what that means. If I have enough faith, if I can work up enough strength of faith, then God is going to do for me what I need him to do. Or God's going to do for me what I want want him to do even. Isn't that right? I mean, sometimes people read the miracles of Jesus and they think that's just a blank check for me. If I have enough faith, then Jesus is going to have to do his tricks. That is not what Jesus meant. When Jesus said your faith has made you well, that was just another way of saying God has made you well. Your faith was just simply the power cord. Your faith came to the right source and plugged itself in to the right source. And God began to do the work that only he could do, whether it was the healing or whatever it was. And here in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's just saying, just like me, if I just plug my power cord into my computer, but not the wall, it ain't going to do anything. That's what that verse is saying. Without faith, without faith connected into me, and then on the other side, connected to God alone, it's impossible to get anywhere with God. It's impossible to please him. It's impossible to have a relationship with him. Faith is resting, standing, standing still. And you say, well, that's so easy. That isn't easy. Listen to the old preacher, Charles Spurgeon. I dare say, he says, that you will think it's a very easy thing to stand still. But it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. Did you hear that? You think it's easy just to stand still and wait on God? You've never tried if you think that it's easy. Right? Uh, You think it's easy just to rely on his strength and goodness rather than your own? That means you've never started trying. You've never even begun with faith. You've never had a revolution in your heart. If you've had that revolution, you know it's one of the hardest things you can do. Uh, Spurgeon goes on. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. You know, if God can just get me doing something, that feels a whole lot better because at least I feel like I'm making progress. He says it's perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies. Human armies, literally the first thing they learn is how to stand in formation. Isn't that right? Before they ever start learning to march, they learn to just line up. And be seen by the commanding officer. But it is one of the most difficult things to learn under the captain of our salvation. And yet at the Red Sea crossing, that was the thing once and for all that God was teaching us and the people of Israel. If you are going to have saving faith and not just fake faith, not just nodding your head to truths about God that really have not affected your heart. If you're going to have real faith... You've got to learn how to roll the burden of your heart onto him. You've got to learn to take your stand and just stand still before him. You have got to learn how not to to labor in your life, constantly, restlessly, feverishly trying to do X, Y, and Z so that God will love you. 
or feverishly X, Y, and Z trying to do all these faithful things so that God will give you what you want. You've got to learn how to stand and receive what God is offering you. And it might not be what you wanted him to offer you, but too bad, he's God and you're not. (laughs) And so just stand still and receive it. Stand still and receive That's what faith does. Walking in the only path that's ahead. Looking up because all the horizontal avenues have been closed down anyway. <laughs> and rolling off the weight of your life onto God. I wonder. Well, you know, when a crowd came to Jesus one time, after he had fed the 5,000, they said, Jesus, what works must be we, be we working to do the work of God? They used work three times. What work must we be working to do the work of God? And Jesus said, the work of God is this. Believe on the one he sent. Stand still and watch me work. Here I am. And so at the heart of your life this morning, on this Sabbath day, this day of rest, at the heart of your life, is there rest in God or is there restlessness in yourself? I know for me, when I ask that question, I'm convicted. Because very often in my life, there's just this undercurrent of restlessness, this anxiety of what I need to do and when I need to do it and how I need to do it and whether God's going to like what I do. I mean, isn't that true of you too? Just that constant churning. Well, Jesus came into the world to take that burden off and to put in its place at the core of your heart rest for your soul. Not just body rest. Soul rests and body rests. That's the second thing. Lastly this morning, how is faith nourished? It's amazing that this event, um, like I said, was like a, it was like a wedding day. It was like a graduation day. It, it made a difference in the moment for sure, right? It saved them from the Egyptians. It got them headed to the promised land. But it was also an event that they remembered for generation after generation after generation. Um, uh, this week I was just reading and, and re- recognized that many psalms, uh, at least a dozen different psalms, are just about rehearsing this event in the book of Psalms. They're just celebrating this one event. It was so critical in the, in the, the, the mind and the heart of God's people, and it should be for us today too. We should always remember the Red Sea. And think about what that means. We should remember even more the greater Red Sea that we've experienced as Christians. When our backs were against the wall and the way was made open through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? That was the the mother of all Red Sea crossings. Where God split death wide open. And he dethroned sin and he led us through the only way there was for us to go. Which was to follow him by faith through his resurrection power into new life. We got to remember that. Well, that's exactly why God did it this way. I mean, like I said, God could have done this in so many ways. He could have taken them the easy way and just said, hey, next week I'm going to give you a lecture on depending on me <laughs> rather than depending on yourself. He could have done that. God, God gives great lectures. He could have done that. But he wanted them to have a tangible, a real life physical, unforgettable event that was seared into their soul so that their faith could grow. In Exodus, it tells us, when they crossed the Red Sea and they saw the Egyptians dead on the shore and that they had been spared, it says they feared the Lord, 
They trusted in him and in his servant Moses, and then the next chapter they began to sing. They feared, they trusted, and they sang. In Psalm 106, this is one of those psalms about the Red Sea crossing. It says, the people believed his promise and sang his praise. They believed his promise and they sang his praise. How did that work? The tangible event that God was using to to sear on their heart his trustworthiness. Their, Their saving faith was meeting in a tangible way the faithful Savior. And that became something that taught them for years for years ahead it it taught them and schooled them on what it meant to have faith and it grew their faith you and I need the same God is always bringing we, we call them in our church means of grace you know means meaning ways of working grace God's grace he, he has ways of working his grace into us to nourish our faith uh, sometimes let me, let me explain this a little bit sometimes he uses extraordinary things So in your life, uh, good events, success can be a means of grace where God can teach you the kindness that he shows to you as his child. Sometimes suffering is sent by God as a means of grace. Loss and pain and sickness and all those kinds of things. God can teach us sometimes the greatest lessons through that. Um, Sometimes it's relationships and conversations that we have with people that we love. Uh, those things can be an extraordinary means of grace. Sometimes we may even have a dream. And, you know, I'm not saying that God is, you know, directly, audibly speaking through the dream, but something about when you wake up, you think, man, I learned something. God was, you know, involved in this, and I, and I've, I learned something, I see something now that I never saw before. That's extraordinary means. But, you know, the Bible also says he gives us ordinary means of grace. The Word, the Bible. A tangible thing. You have to literally pick it up, either in your hands here or on your phone. You've got to literally pick it up, and you've got to lay your physical eyes on the words, and you've got to read it, either out loud or in your heart. You've got to actually literally do it. And what God is doing through that is he's, he's reminding you of his faithfulness so that your saving faith can meet once again the faithful Savior and grow. Prayer is this way. It's an ordinary means of grace where we can actually unburden our hearts to the Lord. Uh, The accountability and fellowship of the church. Uh, Baptism, uh, communion, these are tangible ways that God is saying, I am the faithful Savior, now respond to me in faith. All other horizontal avenues are closed down. Come Come the vertical way. Follow me out of death and into life. And don't you know, if you think about it this morning, I want everybody to think about this. God is constantly in your life using both of those ways, extraordinary and ordinary means. And he's, he's pouring into your life through your circumstances and through the, the ways that he has promised in his word that he's going to work and reveal himself. And he's doing that in order to nourish you. He's giving you something tangible to have your faith in intangible things built up. And yet I want you to think, the Israelites, just days after the Red Sea, started to grumble. They started to complain. They had forgotten already. The most amazing thing they forgot. And they began to, in their hearts, turn back to self-centeredness in, in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. If that's true of them, how true of, that is, uh, how true of us is that, right? 
And how often you and I need to go back to the ways that God has given to us to build our faith. Um, in other words, what I'm saying is the common idea today that faith is just all about what's in my heart and it doesn't really matter what I do. You know, my faith is my faith and I don't have to go to church. I don't have to read the Bible. I don't have to think about God ever. My faith is just static. It just is, it's in there somewhere. It's a feeling. That is false. That is not the way faith begins. It's not the way it continues. It's not the way it ends. Here's how faith begins and continues and ends. Having a real experience with God in the way that God wants you to experience him. And doing that not just once, but over and over. The Israelites, just, the days, just days after the Red Sea, the song had barely left their lips. And they were already grumbling. And they needed to be reminded again by the word. And God brought his word again. And reminded them of who he was so that their faith could get resurrected and revived and brought back to the Lord from self-centeredness. And yet sometimes, y'all, we think we have faith if we just feel like we do. That's not the case. That's like saying, I'm clean just because I feel clean, even though you had not taken a bath in days. <laughs> Doesn't matter how clean you feel, you ain't clean if you haven't taken a bath in days. Also, don't rely just on the extraordinary means. Get, get into the ordinary, right? If you're only thinking, I'm waiting for the dream and the, I'm, I'm waiting for God to do something big in my life to show himself to me, you may be waiting a long time because God doesn't tell us the timetable on these things. It's like saying, I'm going to wait till the next rain shower and run out and get a bath. Okay, you can do that. And actually a rain shower will clean you. But man, it's a whole lot easier to go to that room we call the bathroom and turn on that thing we call the shower and the bath, the ordinary place where you can get washed and wash yourself. <laughs> Same thing. This is the way it's all working in our lives to nourish our faith. We can't just say, well, I feel clean. I feel like my faith is okay. If it's not really being exercised, it's not okay, whether you feel like it is or not. And it's wonderful when God does extraordinary things, but don't wait for the rain shower. Get into the shower. Pick up the Bible. Come to church. You know, if you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Join the church. I mean, these are just basic things that God says, hey, if you do these things, I'm going to show up. And I'm going to show up in a way that's not just formal and you know, religious, but I'm going to show up in a way that's really transformative of your heart. I'm going to change you. Because your, your saving faith that I've given you as a gift is going to meet a faithful Savior. Isn't that right? And so, the Israelites for years and years and years and years remembered the Exodus. Remembered the Red Sea crossing. All the way to the point when Jesus, well, on the Mount of Transfiguration, mentioned the Red Sea crossing. You remember that? Just, you know, just a little bit before he would be crucified... It says that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and the disciples as Jesus lit up. And if you don't know this story, it sounds weird, but sometime we'll talk about this story. Jesus lit up like the sun and his, his clothes were whiter than anybody could bleach them, it says. And the disciples were just absolutely terrified, as you can imagine. And it says in Luke that Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus, which is about to happen in Jerusalem, about his Red Sea crossing. If you're a Christian and you're not regularly revisiting the death and resurrection of Jesus for you, your faith isn't growing. Whether you feel like it or not, your faith can't grow. 
That's the exodus. That's the place where you and I crossed when there was no other way. We crossed from death to life. We crossed from darkness to life. We crossed from sin to God's grace. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for faith. Just all the lessons here in Hebrews 11. And Lord God, we we pray just as a church, just like this verse says, the people believed. Let us as a community, as a church, believe, Lord, in a real tangible way. Help us to build up our, our faith, as Scripture says. God, if there's anybody watching today or here who, who would say, honestly, I, I don't think I have faith. God, I pray that you would split the sea. That you would bring your spirit to them today and help them to be honest with you. Help them to reach out to you. If there's somebody here that says, you know, I, I have faith, I think, but man, I have really not been growing. I, I've been waiting on the rain shower when the shower is right there, or I... Or I've just been basing everything on my feelings rather than on God's word. God, I pray that you would draw them also near to you. And teach them, Lord God, how faithful you are. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.